Welcome to another episode of the Varsity Voice presented by the Bull and Bear. Today we have a conversation with Andrew Bedell, a third-year tight end for the McGill football team. We have a conversation that touches on concussions and the future of football, as well as how player safety is evolving at every single level. Also, we talk about challenges and changes to the youth level, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, Andrew, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come hang out a little bit. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate no, it. No problem. Um, so before we start getting into the meat of the conversation, uh, I'd like to know, how did you know you wanted to play football? Um, funny the way that started, actually. I'd, I'd never played football throughout. I never thought about football whenever I was younger. I was really more of a, I skied, I swam, and I played soccer. And then a bunch of my buddies at school um, just kind of picked it up, and they just decided they were going to start playing and I wasn't going to join. And then on the last day of like the tryouts, a buddy of mine was like, you should come and just do this with me. Like, it'll be fun. So, so how old are you right here? I was 10 years old. Yeah, so I was young. I was really young, actually. It was first year of peewee football. And he just said, you know, you should come give it a shot. And a bunch of my friends were doing it. So, I, you know, mom, can I go? Yes, here we go. Um, and yeah, ever since the first day, I loved it. Um, I mean, there wasn't any pads on the first day. It was a lot of running. And the first time I'd actually gotten yelled at in sport. But uh, yeah, just something just clicked. And why, so why football instead of any other sport? Because you're six six. That height could have been used in hockey and basketball. Why 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 do you think football stuck? Well, funny because it didn't actually come that way at the beginning. Like I was a little bit bigger for my size and my age, but I didn't actually play receiver, or tight end, and that stuff when I began. I was a defensive player for a while, and then our quarterback moved, and so they needed someone to play quarterback. So I did moved that for as a bit. in left. Calgary. Correct. Moved, back to, <laughs> moved down to Texas, actually. And so then they needed someone to do that. So I just said, you know, I guess I'll give it a go. And I did that for a couple of years. And then um, I didn't actually really hit my growth spurt until I was about 16. And that's kind of where my career, I guess, took off as a football player. Fair enough. When did you know you were good enough to pursue football at high, high level, or like the university level? When I started playing in high school, um, in Alberta, the high school kind of works grade 10, 11, 12 as opposed to 9 to 12 in other provinces. Mm. Um, and I hadn't really hit a growth spurt. I was playing grade 10, and um, I hadn't made up my mind of whether or not that was something that I was really interested in pursuing. Mm. And then in, my, in the spring of my grade 11 year, I had a breakout season. I just started playing receiver um, because they decided that, you know. So receiver, so not tight end. Yes. And okay. so then I started playing receiver, and I had a really good season. And I was like, you know, this is really interesting. It's something I want to pursue. Mm. And then uh, I wasn't really sure what it would look like in my current situation in Calgary, um, given that club football, you only play until grade 11. And then I just switched positions from playing quarterback to receiver and maybe needed some more time to develop my skill set. And a family friend of mine, Chris Merchant, he's a quarterback for the Western Mustangs now, was at St. Andrews College, which is an all-boys prep school in Toronto. And he said, you know, if you're really interested in, in pursuing football, you should, you know, go along and um, have a visit and see if you like it. At St. Andrews? Yes. Right. So th- this would be like a, like a PG year kind of thing? Yeah. So it would have been like my grade 12. So I reclassed a year and then it would have been grade 12 and then a PG year. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. And that was his route and it worked for him. Um, and it was because I really wanted to pursue football. Um, okay. So you went ahead with the visit and did you end up going to St. Andrews? I did. Oh, yeah. okay. Cool. So I ended up there for two years. Um, so yeah, Coach Gurr was there and he recruited me there. And that's when I really started playing, like, my first full season as a receiver. And then I didn't actually transition into tight end until the following year. Um, so, yeah, I got there my first year. I was about 6'4", 190 pounds. 
really skinny, lanky, awkward, kind of just hit my growth spurt, didn't really have any body control. Um, and then in the next five months, I put on 45 pounds. and Holy crap. Yeah, grew what? an inch. And then 45 I was, pounds. Yeah, when I started going to camps in May, uh, before my PG year, I was about 6'5", 235. Wow. Playing and were you still playing receiver or playing tight end now? So that was the transition. So I, that summer was kind of when I started to pick up the skills um, to play tight end to do some of the blocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but even at that point in high school, particularly in Canada, there's not really much of a tight end position per se. Um, I mean, there it's is one. Slot, it's all slot backs, right? And because yeah. you get all the motion and stuff, right. uh, they don't really want a guy who's fixed on the line and with a bigger field, and uh, it just makes more sense to have more receivers. Mm-hmm. Um, so even then, I didn't really truly develop the skill sets of a of a stereotypical tight end until I got to McGill. So that's that's interesting to me, right? Because you're you're telling me that you were six four, one ninety, like skinny dude, but but a solid athlete, right? Still still a good athlete, but coaching pushed you towards a different position when you could have hypothetically ended up being six six, maybe two two hundred, two oh five, and being a, a wide receiver. What do, would you think? Like, if you could go back, would you change? Would you decide to be a wide receiver versus a tight end? I don't think so. Um, I mean, so the, the conversation that I had with Coach Gray before I, I moved was, um, you know, my quarterback game was pretty average, but my ability as an athlete was uh, was different just because of the size. Uh-huh. And so he said, based on, and, you know, I'm not very fast. Um, <laughs> I'm very, I would say very medium speed. And so he just said, based on your skill set right now, you come in here, play receiver for a year, get used to it a little bit, and then you can make the transition over afterwards. Right. Um, but I, what, to answer your question, I wouldn't go back and change it. Yeah. So the only reason I asked is because as someone who watches McGill football, I notice that a lot of the receivers are small. So, and it's because they're super fast and shifty. But to, as maybe it's because I don't know enough about the game. But uh, if you could have a, fa- a receiver who's decently fast but also had that height, is someone that could be an advantage or another weapon to have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the one thing also that is a little bit different is that a lot of the guys who are taller and who have the speed and the agility – a lot of them are playing down south, right? Mm. So the guys who are all 6'4", 6'5", right. 200, 210, and have that good speed, good hands, a lot of them are playing down in Division One programs. Yeah. But, I, but you know what you will see in basketball is a lot, uh, coaches will recruit guys as projects, like guys who are – and I'm sure this happens more with linemen, guys who are really, really – who are just big guys who are not necessarily great athletes, and they, the, the idea is to mold them into better athletes with, like – call it uh, university training and practices and stuff like that. But it happens in basketball where they recruit guys who are 6'9", 6'10", who are not necessarily, not necessarily the most skilled players but have that potential because of their size. So, I'm, so uh, yeah, that's, that's the only reason why I pose the question to you. Anyways, I wanted to bring you on to have kind of like a casual conversation about the future of football because uh, I, I'm a fan of football. But a lot of people think that, based on all the concussion stuff and the CTE stuff, that the game is going to have to change because of just the science coming out. Like, it would be it would be almost negligent to not think that the game would need to change based on all the science. So what do you think football is going to look like, like NFL football is going to look like in the next 15 to 20 years? Yeah, so I think I'll answer your question kind of in two parts. Um, the first oh. is that the, the game is already, some of those changes based on the concussions and stuff is and, and the injury rates is already manifesting in the game right now. Right, we're seeing it with the, the whole rushing the passer thing, how, how, how defensive, defensive uh, players are supposed to tackle quarterbacks and not fall on them with their own weight, right? Which is such a difficult thing to do. Right, so the two, the two big rules are, number one is targeting, so a deliberate hit to the head, shoulder to the head. In, in NCAA, it's an automatic ejection if they see you do it. And then in the pros, there's a big fine and a penalty for it. Mm-hmm. And then now, um, and so that rule was definitely made in response to 
um, like the CTE stats and a lot of the concussion stuff that's been coming out Mm -hmm. recently. And then the other one was landing on the quarterback um, and carrying your weight onto him. Um, And that one was primarily because it all started with Aaron Rodgers and his shoulder injury last year. Mm -hmm. And he got landed on. They thought it was a bit of an unnecessary hit. Um, However, I think that the future of football is still going to remain somewhat intact with being a bit more of a violent and a high-speed collision game. And the reason being is that the rule right now that they just made for quarterbacks for not landing on them um, is very controversial. Uh, there's been a, a lot of very questionable calls. Clay Matthews has been on the on the receiving end oh, of those. It's brutal. Those are brutal. If you see the highlights of those, they're they're brutal. But so that exactly is my point is because there's also going to be a cost of viewership with the like if there's no more highlight hit reels and there's a bunch of pathetic penalties, it is going to cost a viewership of not the the pure NFL fans, but the people who kind of tune in regularly right. to see what the buzz is about. Right. But to but to build the case against that is the NFL is a quarterback driven league. You can't you can't win in the I mean, Jacksonville Jaguars last year won with a great defense and a mediocre quarterback, but generally you can't really win in the NFL without a decent quarterback. And uh, so the health it, it's it seems to me as as a fan of the game that they're protect they're putting the quarterback's health over 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 most players, right? With the roughing the pass error and the targeting, like you said. Do you think that like they're they're only protecting quarterbacks and not necessarily other players? So the thing about it is that was um, in terms of protecting the quarterback, they are doing their best to protect them um, as as best as they can with the rules. And in terms of on the concussion aspect, uh, the like hitting below the waist so that you can avoid kind of the head your head bumping off as you get off the turf um, as you fall backwards. And the targeting rules um, are a lot more tailored to the quarterbacks. Um, but I do also think that they get some special attention because they are kind of the face of franchises of the league um, and to the media. And so moving forward, there's they, they have to find a way to protect them, but with the current trends of, pl- like, players are kind of going to constantly get bigger, faster, stronger. Right. Um, so it's a it's kind of, kind of like a competing conflict of interest yeah. between um, having you know, letting them play the game the way it's, it's people believe that it's meant to be played yeah. versus um, if whether or not they want to change it and really uh, shake it up a little bit with the protection of the quarterbacks. So I read the New York Times article. It was, it was kind of like an expose of 110 or 111 uh, CTE brains. It, it, they, it was found to be a biased study because it was people submitting uh, their, their, you know, the, the select, it was, there was a selection bias in the process. But the the... The interesting thing that I took from the article was that the majority of players that had the CTE were offensive linemen, or, or, or not necessarily offensive linemen, but linemen in general, right? And and the, what came from that was the, it wasn't the big hits that it's a constant. It, it was the constant little hits day in and day out. So the, you, you know you see the NFL trying to protect quarterbacks, and and I get it, right? Because quarterbacks, you know, you 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 sell like it, like the NBA in contrast is a is a player driven league. You, you sell tickets based on stars. The NFL, it, it's, it's harder to do so, right? They're less visible with the helmets, and you know, there's so many people on the field. You, you sell the team more than the player. But I, I'd be curious to see if there's any way the game can evolve and, and also protect linemen, because it seems to me that those are the players that are most predisposed to, the, to CTE. So the one, yeah, of course, it's the repeated hits every single play. Um, not, but not only in a game, but like in practice, too. I mean, you have to, th- you have to think about... Uh, now, uh, like a high school lineman playing from grade nine to grade twelve, practicing year round, playing, then going to college, practicing, playing, for three, three, four years, whatever, and then going to the league. Like the accumulation of hits, it, it, it's it's baffling. It really is. It's astounding that 
that they can survive that long, honestly. Um, and the one thing that I think the reason why it's kind of underplayed um, on a top-down level is because they are. There's not a lot of other sports you could get a guy who's six foot eight, three hundred fifty pounds to play. Right. And so that's kind of the stigma surrounding linemen is that they're they're bigger and they're um, maybe not necessarily as they don't have such a high level of intellect. That's not very nice way. Shots sure fired. I mean, the the, the classic <laughs> stigma around a lineman from the outside in is like that. They're just are they the drummers teams. of uh, football? Football. <laughs> I guess so. That's one way to look at it. But I mean, from the inside, there's a lot of guys who are really smart linemen, and that's not at all what it is from the inside. But the outside perspective is that they're just kind of big. Yeah, dude. Heads, don't let so. Laurent Duvarni Tardif hear this. He's gonna be upset. I'm, well, just, I'm just fine. I'm just fine. <laughs> um, Andrew, I'm curious. We've we've been talking a lot about the NFL, but what? Do you think that the university game has seen any of these changes, like the the U Sports League? Have we seen any of these changes? Yeah, so the U Sports League definitely has been seeing some of the changes, not necessarily at the same rate that they've gotten in the NCAA. Maybe as a as a contrast, mm-hmm. um, for example, there's a there's a big controversy last year with Trenton Miller, who's a quarterback of the Concordia Stingers, and they had uh, there's a couple questionable hits in their game against Laval, and one of the players actually had a two game suspension for that. Um, and the one thing that I would say that maybe necess- not necessarily um, inhibits the like the attention, but it was the one of the only televised games of the year, and so because it was televised, there's a lot more reruns of the game, right. and a lot more people saw it, and then it got shared on Facebook. There's over 80,000 views, and he was just basically saying that there's no room in the game for it, which I agree with, yeah. and the fact that he's a student athlete, and that there is, you know, he's got a lot more aspirations beyond just playing football and so in terms of if whether or not the rule change has transcended down to the U sports league per se it's getting there but there's a bit of a lag yeah you so so no not real change yet not really yet so like in the states like i said earlier the ncaa if you get a targeting penalty you get you get an automatic ejection um whereas here because there's not necessarily a fan base all the games aren't nationally broadcasted there isn't as much light that's shed onto the issue um which is part of the problem and then as well um just like the lack of an attention and the lack of, um, I guess, focus on the concussion issue right. isn't necessarily, not, everyone isn't necessarily as, as aware as they are um, in other bigger leagues. What do you think, like, what do you think about the youth sports? Do you think you'd let your kid play football, knowing all that you know about football? I look at you and shaking my head. Um, <laughs> well, so, I mean, if when I, like, I started playing football at 10 years old, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been playing for a really long time, and... If I sustained concussions when I was really young, I probably honestly don't have, I don't know, um, just because I didn't really understand what a concussion was, what the symptoms were and everything else. I just thought I was playing football and kind of got my bell rung and that's just the way it was. Um, and there wasn't the same stigma around head injuries back then as there is now. Yeah. Part of that is due to the stats and the media coverage. Um, and I definitely would not let my kids play. Um, it's similar to like, if you look at youth hockey, for example, they don't actually let the kids hit until they get to a certain age. Whereas in youth football, you can start playing Adam football at I think like nine years old, eight years old, and there it's full go. Really? And so it is, I definitely would not let my kids play until either their, their brains are more developed um, and just the game gets a little bit smarter in terms of hits to the head and player safety. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like there's a lot that can be done at the youth level to, 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 to focus on skill development and not necessarily the contact portion. Like, I, I, I know this is an unpopular opinion, but I love flag football, and I don't think there's anything wrong with flag football, but this, this, the, the ball skills of football, are, I think, can trans, translate to when they start to hit. So I'm, this is like a, I don't know, this is kind of a shitty proposal, but 
uh, ha- having kids play t- flag football until they're 12 because the reality is a lot of them don't, no one really wants to be a lineman when you're growing up, right? You want to you touch the ball. You want to be in a skill position. So I feel like that's a way they can work on the, like the athletic skill portion because there are a lot of really good skill, like athletic skills that kids work on because of football, starting and stopping, cutting, catching, jump, like running and jumping. And ca- like there's a lot of things that are good about football is what I'm trying to say. So the only <laughs> counter argument I would have to that and something that's becoming a real issue now Yeah, yeah. Is, tell me why my idea is stupid. Please. Well, no, I'm not, not necessarily that angle, but just, like, <laughs> my only counter to that would be then why not just play a different sport? Why not, you can go learn how to be agile, make cuts, catch a ball, playing basketball. If you're True. a big, huge dude and you don't really have anything else to do, you can play basketball. That's or true. if you want to learn more about so you, you change of direction. So you think, to, sorry to cut you off, you think that the draw to football is the contact? I wouldn't say that the draw to football is the contact. I just think that the argument that you could develop other skills in a non-contact football is maybe diluted a little bit by the fact that you could pick up very similar skills playing other sports. And so, you know, if you wanted to play other sports and then transition into football later, you could easily do that without playing non-contact football. Um, And if you are a, you know, an overweight young kid, there's not going to be a lot of basketball teams that are going to take you, whereas football coaches will be like, just like, they'd be all over you to play, right? And what's the first thing when you see like a massive kid when you're growing up, like a huge, you know, way yeah. bigger than all the kids his age, is you should be playing football. That's usually yeah. the first thing that pops in my head. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about the U sports being slow, there being there kind of like a lag to adjusting the rules to to maximize player safety. But what role does McGill Athletics have in educating athletes like like yourself or football players in terms of concussions and and, and player safety, if if any? Um, they've actually had a huge role. They've really stepped their game up in the last two years, particularly. Um, and even like the difference between when I first got here, my first year, two years ago, and now there's a very tangible difference. That is due to, number one, we get seminars based on um, nutrition and head injuries. And um, it, there's a lot more awareness that goes around for it. The second is that the concussion protocol for A, our league, and B, and it's particularly enforced at McGill, is the protocol for return to play. So it used to be kind of like just go sit in a black room until you don't get symptoms, and then when you're ready, to, when you're done that, you have a couple of days and you're back. But now it's kind of moderately increasing the amount of stimulus you can give to your brain in both an academic and an athletic context, and they're very good. I mean, I had a concussion in my first year playing here, and the, both on the academic side and on the athletic side, they were very good with um, walking me through the, the steps to get back to A, the classroom, and B, on the field. And we also, like, there's... A lot more, like the coaches really don't want to push us back from a head injury, um, whereas you get that a lot. In, in terms of them challenging you for, for saying, I don't feel right? Yeah, exactly. It's never, like if you take a big hit and you come off with a concussion, um, maybe 10 years ago a coach would have just said, you know, go have a smelling salt in the tunnel and come back out. Whereas, and that was actually very the good common. old days. It was all <laughs> over the place. You wouldn't believe it. Um, there's a lot of guys in the NHL. Dan Carcillo just came out and um, he had this big expose about how he had so many head injuries and there was never any attention to it. And it was basically just kind of like cut it out and snap out of it and get back yeah. on the field. Whereas now they're a lot more sensitive with the issues because they do understand the long-term consequences and the impact. Um, so I guess to sum up all of that, to answer your question, yeah. that McGill is very proactive and good about dealing with concussions and with head injuries as well. That's good. I'm, I'm curious a little bit about the the culture of concussions, right? Uh, like you, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit when you, when you were explaining how your coaches don't really push back whenever, whenever you, you present to them a, a head injury. But what, what about your teammates? Do you ever feel like people don't necessarily think that 
a hit was worthy of a concussion or it, it, does it does it, do you ever get pushback from teammates? Yeah, in terms of the teams that have been on since I've been part of the program here, um, there hasn't really been any pushback from other players as much as it is as there is maybe in in, in the pros. I would say that whenever you, because the thing about a concussion is that it's all subjective, right? Your symptoms. So it's not like you can have a doctor or someone look at you and like you, they can't look at a fractured, you know, at, a, at an x-ray of a fractured bone and look, be like, all right, look, it's medically, you're good to go. It's all based on your symptoms. Um, and there isn't really any negative pushback from other players. You know, if you have a concussion, you have the symptoms, they're not going to rush you back because I think that particularly with the fact, with the way that the stigma has evolved um, with the, how serious head injuries are. Um, there isn't any negative pushback in terms of, you know, you should come back to play or I don't think that you really got a concussion there. It's more of that it was really unfortunate and I hope that you get back on the field as soon as you can within your limits. Okay. That's good. I mean, that's good that there's at least progress in, in terms of that side of things. So the news of CTE and with football players, it's troubling, right? It's troubling for you. It's troubling for people who love the game and love to watch it. So how do you as someone who does it at a high level, wrestle with these scientific fi- findings, but also continue, continuing to play? Because I, I know it's the sport that you love and it's, it's something that you've been doing since you were young, but like, how, how do you wrestle with that? Does it weigh on you? I guess it's not easy. I can tell you, the weighing on me, definitely, for sure. Really? Um, and it is very hard because when you're following a passion, you kind of almost do it blindly. Right. Like I've loved the game for so long and I haven't really looked back on you know, what would be different I have sustained three minor concussions in my career. Uh, I haven't had one in two years, um, but I, I would Knock say on that, wood if you're listening. that quite personally, I, I almost turned a blind eye to it in a sense because I don't want to have that deep internal conflict with the head injury until it's something that is so significant in my personal career that it is it inhibits me from moving forward. Mm. And given that I already have sustained head injuries and I understand the severity of, of having another one statistically with yeah. um, you know just l- problems that can arise later in life yeah. um, with memory loss, Parkinson's, all that, there's a lot of stats on it. Yeah, and sure. it is very dangerous. However, on a personal level, I try and... Um, maybe not play into the buzz and the hype. I haven't personally seen the the Will Smith concussion movie. Let's be honest here. The whole stigma around CTE was really perpetuated in the media and to like mainstream um, both like Hollywood buzz and social media by that movie. Mm. And before that, prior to that, there there were some statistics on the severity of head injuries and concussions sustained playing football. However, it hadn't really met the mainstream market, I guess, until that movie. Mm. And then a lot of people who weren't necessarily sports savants and and fans and followers, it really clicked in for them that it's a very serious issue. Right. And, and probably cultivated their opinions about it without really knowing the culture of the sport. And so personally, I think that it, it is a... It's a lot more severe with people from the outside in because mm. they also can just look at the stat sheet and look at how many concussions there are and what the, all the negative impacts of it are. Um, but in terms of my personal life thus far, there hasn't been any negative impact. Now, there yeah. is going to be probably some sort of long-term repercussions to the head injuries I've already sustained, and I'm not going to deny that. Um, but for my personal level, I don't want to let that inhibit me from prohibit me from playing. Doing something you love to do. Exactly. Yeah. I, I can't help I'm it. Sure. Like I don't want to be have that deep internal conflict of you know, there's all these stats and I'm reading about it and getting freaked out because the only other thing I want to touch on um, before I move on from this one is the fact that we're in an era of statistic collection 
and everybody loves stats. Everyone's so into stats, and there's stats on literally everything now, whereas there weren't before, so it wasn't as much of an issue. So now that there's all this obsession with statistics and how you can build the perfect baseball team, and, or, or um, and I'm going to translate that analogy, even though it's somewhat weak, to um, the severity of concussions, and that's only what they have reported, and those studies that they do are also a little bit biased. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you have to take all of the hype of it with a little bit of a grain of salt, if you will. Yeah. Um, so that's just kind of my personal outlook on it. It's, you know, to, to a lesser extent in terms of injuries and like, like you said, like you don't want it to inhibit your personal enjoyment, but I, I feel the same way in terms of like, I have bad ankles. Okay. Like I've sprained each ankle four or five times, high ankle sprains, all that kind of stuff. And it ma- it makes me think about, um, how I want to play with my kids when I'm older. Like, I, I just hope it'll never hold me back from playing with my kids. But at the same time, it's not like I'm going to stop playing basketball. You know, it's not, it's, it hasn't hit that point where I have to say, I have to say no. And, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, a, it's that we're both at the point of kind of accepting the consequence because it's something that you love and you don't, you aren't ready to give up. Which is kind of the sad truth. It is. And like when you look, I mean, looking forward right now on my life, I might be listening to this in 20 years and saying I was such an idiot for being so ignorant. <laughs> However, at this point, my personal perspective is that I'm going to accept the consequences it has just because I don't want to completely change my life as a student athlete and um, playing football just because of fear of the consequence. It's kind of like a later me problem, to be honest. If yeah, I'm La- later, later Andrew will worry That's about it. That's a later it. me. Like right now I'm just, you know, I'm loving it and I'm going to do my thing and then, um, you know, there's probably going to be some problems and I'll have to cross those roads when I get to them. Well, let's hope there's no problems because... <laughs> Fingers across. That sounds bad. Um, so a way we like to end all our sessions is we like to, I like to pose my guests a question about what would you be doing at McGill if you weren't a student athlete? Because, I, you know, student, uh, athletics consume a lot of our time and a lot of us have different interests. So what, what are some things that you think you'd be involved in if you weren't a student athlete? Wow. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, in season I'm 30, 35 hours a week and out of season still another 20, 25 hours. So... Um, I mean, I've joined at McGill, um, Jed Junior Enterprises Hotel, which is like a consulting, uh, student-run consulting firm. Okay. Um, I'd probably get more invested into that. I think I could also pick up some more interests in uh, following other sports okay. and getting a little bit more involved in the athletics community. Aside from you know um, being a part of it, I could really try and ad- with the advancement and to develop that. Um, yeah, it definitely could use a couple more advocates, I think. I think so, too. <laughs> um, and that's not me calling them out. It's just that I think that there's... You can call them you out. Know, you can give a little bit more attention to it. Yeah, I would. Um, <laughs> and there's definitely a lot of things that I would love to see be achieved at such like a great university um, that right now it seems like either people kind of turn a blind eye to it or there's nobody who really is willing to put in the effort and the energy to really um, get a change going in the current athletic culture. So I think I would also pick up that as a, as a hobby, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Awesome. Andrew, thanks for coming on, my man. Thank you for having me, Noah. I appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is brought to you by The Bull and Bear. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find all episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Varsity Voice is produced by Zach Lannis and Mairead Shaw. Until next time, support McGill Athletics.